0: This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by Harry's.com, Movement Watches, and The Great Courses Plus,
1: as well as our contributors at Patreon.com.
2: And we're back. Rich Adams' chair looks so sad and empty. I know. (laughs) know.
1: I saw him at the end of the driveway looking all despondent as I drove up. I guess I probably should have invited him in. Seriously, though, we were thinking about topics we could have him back for, and he really should be here for this cold open.
2: Have you heard about the new Mothman flap going on in Chicago? Yeah, I have, actually, only because our listeners brought it to my attention on both Twitter and Facebook, which, by the way, i got to say it's been awesome. I wanted to say thank you to everybody because— We can be so buried in the show. We miss like current events that are happening. It's so great now to have this (laughs) network of listeners who are like, oh my God, you got to check this out or check that out. And we hear about on Twitter and Facebook because I wouldn't know what was happening. if.
1: Yeah, no, I I know. And then sometimes stuff really does get buried. We'll see it flash through on a notice. And then it's like, I'll text Scott like, where is that? And like, I don't know. I can't find it again. Yeah. So bear with us. But we really do appreciate all the messages and things you send us and and we can answer questions. Uh, We will try and do
2: so. Yeah. So what's going on? in Chicago. Did you read about it? I read a little bit just about it today. Weird, wild
1: stuff, man. Just a, you know, typical flap of sightings, which comes part and parcel with this territory. It's yeah. that things, you know, happen here and there. But what I love about it is that people give it more weight. And you can't say mass hysteria. I'm tired of hearing that. I've said that before. It's not really the same thing. But when you see hundreds of people all seeing one thing. Look, they can't all be making that up. They can't all be crazy. So that's what I love about mass sightings. Yeah. Well, anyway, there's a ton of sightings all concentrated in one area. I guess uh, Mysterious Universe interviewed cryptid expert Lon Strickler about it, and he says it's a warning. Ooh, a harbinger of doom. Uh, Yes, exactly. It's just like seeing the Chimera in ancient Greek mythology. Get out of there, Chicago. (laughs) I don't know. You know, Chicagoans are pretty tough. I'd take the odds for a Chicagoan over a Mothman in a fair fight. <laughs> the Mothman sends you to the hospital with conjunctivitis. You send him to the Borg. That's the Chicago way.
2: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. It was neither beast nor mad, nor spirit,
1: but a hellish brew of all three. Vance Larner, writing in his diary of
2: his encounter with the Jersey Devil in 1790. Join us tonight for part one of our series on the Prince of the Pine Barrens, the Jersey Devil. 1735, in the remote dusty crossroads of Leeds Point, New Jersey, on the East Coast and far inside the infamous Pine Barrens, a woman known to history as Mother Leeds learned that she had a baby on the way. What should have been a moment of joy for her was instead a portent of doom. For this child was to be her 13th, and she was barely able to make ends meet as it was. Life in the Pine Barrens was extremely difficult, and her brood was quite a handful already. And some stories say that the father of this 13th child was none other than the devil himself. When she found out she was pregnant yet again, she did the unthinkable and cursed her impending offspring, saying, I am tired of children, let it be a devil. Rumored to be a witch herself, her curse seemed to grow roots when it came time for her to give birth. She was in a birthing house in town known as the Shrouds House, which no longer stands. Gathered there with her were her family and several local midwives to help her through the birthing process. Mr. Leeds and the rest of the kids waited in adjoining room. A fierce storm had set in, and wind and rain battered the home so severely that the candles in the room were frequently being extinguished from the drafts pouring through the shutters as thunder crashed all around them. People had heard of her curse, but no one took much stock in it, and they were all in fact relieved when a completely normal baby boy was delivered. Their relief, however, was short-lived, when suddenly the child began a metamorphosis right before their eyes. The midwives began to scream, and Mr. Leeds and the rest of their kids raced into the room to witness a horrific transition taking place the child's body seemed to stretch and grow into a long, almost snake-like dragon with a pointed devil's tail. His head elongated and transformed into that of a horse, and his hands became claws, while his feet became cloven as two horns grew out of his head. To make matters worse, large, bat-like wings sprouted from his shoulders. Once this transformation was complete, He stood upright, now with strength greater than the strongest adult man. He let out a blood-curdling sound that was louder than the thunder outside. His tail twitched rapidly like a cat about to pounce on its prey, a warning that came too late as he proceeded to beat everyone in the room, eating some and pummeling others before letting out another blood-curdling roar, unfurling his wings and flying across the room into the fireplace where the roaring fire did little to slow him down as he shot up the chimney into the night. Bricks, smoke, and fire rained down into the room full of injured and dying midwives and Leeds family members. The Leeds Devil, who would ultimately also come to be known as the Jersey Devil, flew out into that stormy night in 1735 and for the next 240 plus years stalked, attacked, and scared the residents of not only the 1,700-square-mile New Jersey Pine Barrens, but eastern Pennsylvania as well, leaving hundreds of dead farm animals and terrified victims in its wake. It was a dark and stormy
1: night. <laughs> well, it's been mentioned so many times. It's dark. It really and stormy. was a dark and stormy <laughs> it was a, night. And in this
2: case, that really is the weather condition. Or I throw mama from the train. The night was moist. <laughs> no, no, wait. The <laughs> night was sultry. Sultry, yes. yeah.
1: The night was sultry. <laughs> uh, no, the night was moist. No, the point being <laughs> is that you just heard the basic origin story. For the New Jersey Devil. Yes. Which originally
2: was called the Leeds Devil. There are some people that will
1: argue about that extensively. Absolutely. Because there's two main names and it switches off between location as Leeds Point or
2: the family name. As being leads. Yes. Yeah, and there's, there's a whole there's another town, by the way, besides Shrouds? Leeds Point. Uh, Shrouds is another family name, right? Well, the Shrouds house where this story indicates that the Jersey Devil was born was a birthing house. Across it was in town there, but I shouldn't say in town, but I, yeah. I don't know exactly where it was, because all that's left now, you can't even see it now. There's a depression right. in the ground where it was and it's overgrown right. with thorns. They say don't even try to go to it. <laughs> well, that, but, that thorns um, will keep me out. Yeah. But that's the point. You start with a basic story
1: possibly rooted with real people, because this is about 1735, right? And you have real elements of a story, but then it spins out of control and over about 280 years here, like 282
2: years... Now you have so many variations of it, but there are some things that keep the same. Well, it's kind of like what Rich was saying week before last when we had him on for the first of the two shows he was here for about the telephone game. You know, the longer the legend lasts, the crazier it gets. And there's a lot of variations on it. Obviously, we're going to be saving, as we usually do, our theories discussion will be coming in part two of this series on the Jersey Devil. But, But right now, one thing we can talk about right away is we told you what seems to be the most accepted version of the origin story.
1: Yeah, you did a good job. I'm calling culling down the major points, which that's what is fascinating to me is that there are some things, like you said, the telephone game. Well, it hadn't gotten so far afield that it's not even about a woman giving <laughs> yeah. birth anymore. You know, It's just like, it's some
2: other cryptid story. It's that some elements do remain because I think that's part of a good story. Right. The changes in the versions, the other versions, there's only a couple of other accepted versions. And one of them suggests that when this thing. (laughs) No offense, Jersey Devil, (laughs) was born that it was already malformed. It was a devil right when it came out, as opposed to going through this metamorphosis in the room a la Starman, which is what I... <laughs> or the thing I make maps, yeah, yeah, but no, there, no it's
1: interesting because I always look at it, it's like levels that you're willing to accept, even if you believe in cryptids or the supernatural at some point, it gets into just pure magic, supernatural magic, and that say you believe the story of well, I don't think it was a devil, but this child being her thirteenth and poor nutrition and and just taking all these factors in, she was much older at that point. The child could have been severely deformed it had a lot of birth defects with it. Yes. And so it comes out, and of course, people around could have seen that there was a deformity with the child and started making up stories because back then it was scorned. They thought, you know, in the 1700s, if you had a birth defect, like, ooh, you're in league with the devil, maybe. So those things were kind of kept hush-hush. But from there, it could have spun a yarn. But what I like about it is that that actually is more believable If it came out, it was it was a devil with horns and a tail and wings. And it's like, yeah, you know, for people back then possibly believing that. However, the less likely scenario or more impossible to believe is that it came out looking rather regular as a regular born child. Normally, you could say. And then immediately in front of everyone's
2: eyes turned into a devil. Like, okay, now that's crazy. Yeah. And then <laughs> like, and then yeah. beat and murdered people in the room. And, oh, I didn't know. And murdered, but I didn't well, hear one the of the beating. one yeah. of the midwives supposedly
1: died. See, that's the thing for a legend. If you're going to include that, then those things can be checked up on. Yeah, did, did somebody actually die in the room?
2: Yeah, you know? that's true. And it flew up the chimney where well, the chimney was obviously yep. too small, so the bricks were falling down oh, and the geez. fire. And it's a pretty amazing story. But the only other real variation there, aside from how it was born, was the idea of who the father was, whether it was Mr. Leeds or the devil himself, Yes, you know? And so that's the other big question there. And I got to say, obviously, the Jersey Devil, it's a pervasive infamous cryptid in the United States anyway. I don't know for our listeners who are abroad, Christops, you'll have to chime in and tell me if you've heard of it. <laughs> I'm, sure they, in, but, I'm sure there's a Latvian devil in yeah. the woods, because as Christops has told us,
1: it's heavily forested, that country. There's some statistic that he told me that it's one of the countries in Europe that has, as far as like the urban population to actual massive forests, is way off kilter like it, it it sounds really
2: nice but he says yeah basically you could be on the train and just see Trees, trees. and trees and trees, yeah. And of trees. when we mentioned Christophs, by the way, that's our friend who has a podcast called The Eastern Border, yes. which you should uh, check out if you're interested in. All about being raised in Latvia, growing up Latvian
1: under Soviet influence, yes. you should say. It's so, very interesting. Yeah.
2: But anyway, the idea of this creature going out into the night and then living on, having this ridiculous Count of St. Germain <laughs> lifespan, um, <laughs> well, of course, well, it's like, not turning up and playing the piano or the harpsichord. No, I, right, exactly. Or speaking foreign languages. Right. There's people who seriously try
1: to determine some logical explanation for this thing. Because the one thing that you cannot deny that we will get into more in the theories part is that thousands of people have now reported something strange, either hearing it or seeing it or encountering it face-to-face. And these are sober, trustworthy individuals.
2: Well, not all of them. But, not all of them. But
1: like, but he, well, <laughs> you got to be careful there. Like, no, but some of everything. them are
2: crazy and were definitely drunk. But well, – yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's look. There's you know. there's two different elements here. It's like people will say, like
1: you was drunk. It's like you don't, like, boy. Unless you're having DTS, you're not really hallucinating. No, but
2: I've read more than a few things about a bumper yeah. applejack crop. Oh, of course. And there was yes. a lot of applejack going around. Yeah, in the that was barons. the drink. Of,
1: right, that was the drink of choice back
2: then. And when we talk about the barons, you'll understand why. But before we go too much yeah. further, the reason that we have all this information, we did want to quickly cite our sources for tonight's show because we found some really great books on this. One of the great things about working on a, one of the more famous stories like this where you can actually find a great deal of information. I wanted to say that we drew heavily from a book called The Jersey Devil and also a follow-up updated edition of that book called Phantom of the Pines. Both of those were by James F. McCloy and Ray Miller Jr. So the Jersey Devil is an older one. I can't remember what year it came out. It's very extensive. It's a bestseller in terms of this kind of literature, anyway. And then they updated that with the Phantom of the Pines, which is great because it's a little bit more in depth of the first edition. And then it has more recent sightings coming all the way up through the 70s and 80s, which is really fascinating because for a minute you think they've stopped, but people are still seeing it. Oh, no, no. It
1: continues to this day.
2: That's, I always love saying
1: that about any kind of uh, mysterious legend. To this day. It continues to this day. What I love to say is that if you're listening to this late at night, it could happen to you. Just look out your window.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's more than a few—and by the way, speaking of looking out the window, there's a bunch of stories in these books where somebody heard something outside, and they looked out the window, and it was right there (laughs) staring back. That's just frightening. That's right up there with the communion thing. It's like you look up, and it's there it is. It's looking at you. (laughs) I have to think about that. It doesn't
1: really freak me out. These kind of things don't. I'm much more afraid of freaky humans doing weird (laughs) things. Sometimes if it's hot out, my window is kind of high up. So no normal human could be peering in. Well, that makes it even worse. That's what I'm saying is that I don't want to see anything hovering, flapping its wings, or I I don't want to see any Salem's lot of my childhood friends scratching at the window. Yeah. Yeah. Something appearing at the window is, is a great trope, I guess. But that really happens to people that we believe People have told me lots of strange things they've seen through their windows to frighten them. So as you go through listening to this legend, pay attention to the little tropes, you could say, like the number 13, the 13th child, or some stories have it as her sixth eighth, tenth, or twelfth child. It really just depends on who's telling it and what kind of numbers they like. But they're all, you notice they're all kind of even, nice integers there. But that's all
2: part of a legend, the rule of threes. And well, and then it comes up, like you said, to the 13. And I will say this, just to put a little bit of weirdness to it, because you're right. There's been a lot of people said, oh, it's this number kid and that number kid. I did go onto Ancestry.com. Oh, you did? Yes. And I didn't do a lot of extensive research on it because we were busy sort of sorting out all these stories, because this story has hundreds if not over a thousand anecdotes and picking the right ones to share that was tricky business but on Ancestry.com, I did find a Leeds family tree uh-huh. that had listed these parents. It was, I believe, Deborah Leeds. The father was, I believe, Daniel, yeah. if I'm, that, if I'm that not mistaken. Right. And they, they were among the first guys to come to this area. And, and we'll talk more about that in our part two. But I will say that I found this family tree that does show that couple and cites a will that lists... 13 children in the will.
1: Oh, there you go. All right. right. And I love when things play out as real. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Because you could say like, oh, come on, people didn't have that many kids. No, that was common back
2: then. Yeah. And we should mention a couple of these other sources. Well,
1: there's one that I came across. Of course, I usually always check Weak and Weird. It's one of my favorite websites. But Josh Sanofsky... Wrote a pretty good four-part piece on the Jersey Devil for the Week and Weird website. Yeah, it's a great website. And it's, yeah, I, well, we we love those guys anyway. That
2: all the yeah, we're trying they to do. get them on the show too, but we're everyone's so busy. They're, they're driving <laughs> yeah, exactly. all over the country. Frankly, I'm jealous of what they're doing. R- I know. Got a traveling museum. A, the whole a couple yards. they have a fun job. It's yeah.
1: Greg Newkirk and Dana Matthews who run that site over there. But anyway, Josh's article it's in four parts, like I said, four different web pages, but it's pretty comprehensive and it's concise. So it's a good overview. If you listen to this and you want to just see something in print and go
2: back and check it out. It won't take you forever to read because you all have (laughs) short attention spans, right? That's what they say. We know that our listeners don't have short attention spans, though, because our shows are interminably long.
1: Right. I think you drift (laughs) off, fall asleep, come back and like, didn't miss a beat, didn't miss anything of importance at, at all. So here's another friend of the show, I will say, Lauren Coleman, and his name has been coming up quite a bit lately. But he has a great section on the New Jersey devil in his book, Monsters of New Jersey, Mysterious Creatures in the Garden State. Along with his co-author Bruce Hallenbeck.
2: Yes, we'll be referring to his book and Lauren. We actually have been wanting to have him on the show. He is a legendary cryptid expert. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, been around a while. Yeah, he's and, up in. Uh, he's
1: got a museum of of cryptozoology up in Maine, I
2: believe. Yes, he does, and he's uh, we interact with him uh, frequently on Twitter. So that's really cool.
1: So there you go. And one I wanted to mention just for fun is I heard an interview with author Hunter Shea on Jim Harold's Paranormal Podcast, Cryptid Report Number no. Seven. So many shows. I, I, yeah, you can <laughs> I don't know how he number. does it. <laughs>
2: I don't know when he sleeps this makes or Seven eats. a week. I yeah. Didn't, yeah.
1: But this was kind of fun because Hunter Shea, the author, wrote a fictional book, but he also did a lot of genuine, real research for it. Now, he grew up in the New York area, and a lot of in laws and relatives are from New Jersey, from that particular spot. So he said he grew up with the legend and the lore all his life, but went around and talked to a lot of people in the region. And that's fascinating because he, he and his, I guess his brother-in-law said, like come on, we're going to get in the car. We're going to like really interview these people. This would be good stuff for your book. And he's like, are you sure? They talked to hundreds of people. And he had some good, interesting things to say. One I'll just mention here, we'll probably talk about a little bit later in depth later on, is that people do see a weird creature, but most people hear something very strange. So it's like a Bigfoot thing. You hear knocking or weird calls. A lot of people who live in the area currently hear strange, unworldly, unlike any other animal you've ever heard or bird or whatever it is, screech owl, these weird sounds out in the woods at night. And so that, and the other interesting thing is he said, even maybe more than the New Jersey devil, are Bigfoot sightings. Yes, it's, and we're gonna it, talk about that It's here Bigfoot rich. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I just wanna give a shout out to all our paranormal compadres. Father's Day is just around the corner.
2: Actually, by the time the show drops, Father's Day is going to be practically next door.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, valid point. Well, here's the thing, though. You can still get something cool for Dad that he will actually use and will easily upstage that gift you might have already purchased. Are you saying the paisley tie isn't usable? (laughs) Well, no, not in mustard yellow and avocado green. Look, all dads have beards, or would if they didn't shave. And fortunately for you, our friends over at Harry's have a special offer that you're going to love and your dad will too. Get $5 off one of their shave sets, including a limited edition Father's Day set at harrys.com
2: ALP. This is actually the perfect gift. They sent two of these sets to me. I love the one I kept, and I gave one to a friend who immediately signed up with Harry's after using it. I love shaving with Harry's because I get a super close shave, and even though I have a rough beard, the razor just glides right across my skin.
1: <laughs> Ooh. Well, Harry's shave sets start at just $15, not to mention the $5 off when you go to harrys.com slash ALP. You get a razor handle moisturizing shave gel, and three of Harry's
2: five-blade precision-engineered razors. And the limited-edition Father's Day shave set comes with a nicely weighted storm gray razor handle, a chrome razor stand, foaming shave gel, three replacement blades, and a travel cover. And all of that is in a very sleek, giftable box. You can even add custom engraving and a personalized card for free.
1: Go to Harrys.com slash ALP right now to redeem a special offer for fans of the show. Harrys will give you $5 off one of their shave sets. This is for a limited time only, so act now. That's Harrys.com slash ALP to get $5 off and help support the show.
0: Hi, I'm Marianne Delarocco, an artist, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends, my very favorite podcast ever. So come on, let's get back
2: to the show. The thing that's interesting to me about this story and the legend about it, and we're going to get into some real specific cases of sightings here later on. But right now, the one thing I wanted to talk about was coming from that main origin story that we shared at the top of the show. The idea that this creature is supernatural. I think in a lot of cases with cryptids, it's interesting. Because when you look at the history of Bigfoot Mm -hmm. and the idea of Bigfoot, for the longest time, what you had was this hairy man-ape out in the woods <laughs> yeah. that nobody could seem to catch, but right. it was this creature, and it was very adept at staying out of sight, and everyone just thought it was this animal that you could... Well, not everyone. A lot of yeah. people are like, it doesn't exist. Okay, so sure. then those people, if they, if you believe any of this at all, kind of people with Bigfoot. Yeah. But then it evolved eventually to the possibility that it seemed to have some sort of supernatural agility yeah. as some way to appear and disappear and that sort of thing. Yeah. I even saw Les Stroud dealing with this on his show when some food disappeared from a tree where he planted it. right? And his cameras went down and all that skinwalker kind of stuff. Yeah. And at that point, Bigfoot became, I think in recent time, and I'm not a Bigfoot expert, and I know that we have Bigfoot experts that listen to our show. So Enthusiasts. If, yes, enthusiasts. Yeah. Feel free to get back to me on this. But I feel like more recently, it has become more acceptable to possibly think of it as a supernatural creature. And I know there's two camps. I think there's warring right. factions about that, by the way. Well, that, yeah. you have to
1: be careful with your wording, but it's specific because when you say supernatural, that implies magic in yeah. a way. What I like Which is just do- anything you don't understand. <laughs> well, no, I always say this. It's like you look at a magic trick. The one thing you have to remember when you're thinking, oh my gosh, how do they do it? That's magic. It's like, it's not magic. It's mechanical. Yeah. It's just you don't see the mechanics behind it, which is clever, and I love clever, but there's no magic to it per se where things instantly materialize. However, when you look at quantum physics that and all these different theories that are emerging that have been around for probably the last half of the century in theoretical
2: physics, it's starting to look like some of this might be possible at least mathematically. Yeah, but and the real it, question is, I think yeah. how do you biologically how do you control or manipulate that kind of behavior. Well, who knows how that's controlled. I don't think Bigfoot has any control,
1: like, I'm going to appear here. Oh, look at me. And he grabs a candy bar and comically disappears, you know, while Les turns around, like, hey, what the? Yeah. Where's my Snickers? So the theory is that he could be even ghost-like. That's one theory. But what it does is it explains some major problems that people have with the Bigfoot cryptid, the story about it. Yeah. Because, one... Uh, How come you never see any Bigfoot bones? We've certainly come across Neanderthal bones and uh, primitive humans and proto-humans and Lucy, the three-foot tall, you know, on the Indonesian island.
2: But you never find any Bigfoot bones. I guess the idea, though, of these things appearing and disappearing because they have some sort of ability. Right. That as you said, is supernatural or magic because we don't understand it kind of magic. Well, but that also plays right into, and I can't remember, there's a term for it. I know we probably have yeah. some sociologists or anthropologists who could come up with this term. I can't remember what this term is, but it's where people rationalize The crazy thing that they're trying to make work by saying, oh, the reason there's no Bigfoot bones is because it teleports. uh, (laughs) Because you just just, make it work. You make it work so you can keep believing in it. Well, justifications.
1: Yeah. I look at the other way. It's that you're trying to, and and I'm working on a good phrase I'm going to put on a t-shirt here, but it's like (laughs) you try so desperately to find a rational explanation of something that's impossible, that you view as being impossible, that the... Rational explanation sounds more irrational and ridiculous than the irrational explanation. Yes. Because like, I'm trying to hammer this square peg into the round hole and it's like, I'll make it fit. So you can go either way. Yeah. So it's not really even that crazy. And again, you have these possibilities of like what they call a survivor of some kind of ancient species of some kind, or maybe a hybrid or deformed aspect of a genetic line. That has somehow found a way to survive, like Nessie. It's a deep, big ocean out there. You look at Lake Baikal, maybe there's some weird stuff down there. It's four and a half miles deep, which freaks me out. So Loch Ness and Nessie, it's like, well, maybe there could be a very old species, and we don't know how long their lifespan is, but it's like the coelacanth. It's a prehistoric fish. And they think, like, that thing's extinct. Come on, that was millions of years. Yeah. And then they find one. Yeah. Good point. And <laughs> That's so, a good point. And so theories like that happen. That's just one part of cryptozoology is like the Jersey Devil is maybe some kind of reptilian hybrid, whatever it is, that just survived. And of course, some people think, like, well, it sounds like a hybrid pterodactyl. It's pretty unlikely. Yeah. And so that is a, an explanation that works well, in my thinking, for Bigfoot. It's not something living in caves waiting to kidnap Albert Ostman and eat his snuff and yeah. do backflips. Yeah maybe there's something, another world, another dimension, another universe that kind of the frequency fades in a little bit and we see a big one and then it kind of fades out and he goes wherever his land is, his reality. And it must be just as shocking for him. Yeah. Except that he likes to come here and get candy bars off that guy with the tripod pointed back at his own face. Yeah. <laughs> right. Les Stroud. That's what right. we're talking about. We love Les, by the way. It's just, yes. And we wish somebody would find something. But I'm not sure that that answer is ever going to come, where you found a clump of fur, and you check the DNA, and it's something that does not match anything in the Actually, they have done that. Right, but it's always like, isn't it a combination? Well, this is bear fur.
2: No, there was- Are you telling me that they found some fur that does not match anything known? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that the Monster Quest guys with the cabin in Alaska, maybe, where they had put down the board by the front door with the nails- or the hunter. Oh, had.
1: yes. That's one of your favorite episodes. Yeah.
2: I'm pretty sure that the fur, they couldn't identify the fur that was on that. Uh, so that's interesting. But, I, you know, we're getting too big footy here. But what
1: we're talking <laughs> about is evidence left. And the reason that it pertains directly to the Jersey Devil is that a lot of these same things will line up. Some yeah. form of evidence of a close encounter of a second kind, but nothing definitive. You'll well, see footprints.
2: And here's the other thing about the Jersey Devil that. Bigfoot, at least, anthropomorphically, makes yeah. sense. Well, it's a tall dude <laughs> with a lot of fur. That's exactly The Jersey Devil is the craziest looking yeah. thing you have ever... It's got a horse head yeah. or a goat head, tiny wings, or I don't know, they're tiny, they're big. In the pictures, they're kind of small. Wings on its back, yeah. not like Mothman size. Right. And it stands on its cloven back two feet, and then it has tiny Tyrannosaurus Rex arms. front. <laughs> right. Physically, it doesn't work. And the fact that it flies—how could something like that fly? It just doesn't— That's what I'm saying. Not in this dimension anyway, buddy. But (laughs) but here's
1: the the point. That description, what you just described there, as far as what people have seen physically, because people have been face-to-face with this thing, up close, not like a UFO from a thousand yards away. Up close— impersonal. No one's, I believe, has taken any pictures directly of this thing. But it's been seen, it's seen them, it's made an impression, there's a little bit of interaction of hissing and screeching, of course, at the humans. So that is the enduring description of it. Now, what I found that's kind of fascinating, especially to you classics professors out there, is that classically, as a piece of mythology, if you want to just look at it academically like that, it's a lot like and closely related to the chimera in ancient Greek mythology. It's a hybridized animal stuck together like a Mr. Potato Head of several different other animals. Now, the chimera in Greek mythology, also chimera, which stands for she-goat, according to the ancient Greek mythology, it's a monstrous, fire-breathing hybrid creature of Lycia in Asia Minor, composed of the parts of more than one animal, And of course, I'm reading from the Wikipedia entry here because it explains it concisely. It is usually depicted as a lion with the head of a goat arising from its back and a tail that might end with a snake's head. (laughs) So there you go. But nowadays, really, the term chimera has come to describe any kind of mythical or fictional composed creature of very disparate parts perceived as wildly imaginative, implausible, or just dazzling. And the other thing that's interesting is that uh, the chimera, they termed as usually female. The lion is female, even though it had a mane, Uh but they would show the ears, and that's in ancient Greek art, I think that depicts a female lion. But I think the Jersey Devil is often thought of as being male because well, of the it,
2: child, it, the Yeah, male it child. depends on yeah. which one of those origin stories you believe. Was it right. born and transformed? If it was, then that's commonly referred to as a little boy. Yeah. And if it came out already, the Jersey Devil. Right. Then it's then hard to sex it. Yeah, it's hard to sex it. What is that down there? <laughs> well, that
1: could be anything really, another tale. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. No, I see what you're saying, but that's what's uh, interesting about it. It's so kind of weird and wild. Like I said, it's chupacabra. When you hear descriptions of it, it's like, well, it's kind of weirdly dog-like, but it has really long front legs, very short back legs. And so it has this weird lope, you know, as it goes down the road. And it looks like maybe a coyote with mange. That's a huge explanation, a a, a very popular one, because it makes a dog look weird with no fur. Yes. Really dark spotted skin or something. And it likes to bite goats. Well, that's not such a far afield kind of a stretch. And there's one good video of a a guy driving behind it in his pickup going down a Texas road, I think. Yeah. Or New Mexico. Yeah. And it's a weird looking dog with a very weird gait. Yeah. And who knows? And no fur. And
2: no fur. just Some patchy fur. Right.
1: And some guy, he actually found one that was dead. I don't know if he shot it because it was attacking some of his livestock. But it was it's a weird looking creature. But that's not such a stretch. This thing's impossible. Yeah. It does head camel faced <laughs> with horns, <laughs> the wings. It, it, it again, it looks like a kid's play-doh creation here where you're just sticking things on. Yeah. And then the other weird thing that doesn't make biological sense to me is that the hind legs are crane-like, very skinny bird-like legs, but with horse hooves for feet. Yeah. Again, the description is like, nope, that's exactly what I saw. I am telling you everything about it because I stood there and stared at it. We stared at each other for a good
2: 30 seconds. Well, and I would like to add, and this is something that I've been wondering ever since I read it, in at least one case of a sighting, not only did it have cloven feet, but Mm -hmm. it had horseshoes on it. Oh, horseshoes. Yeah, horseshoes. Yeah, not not Chuck Taylor's, but (laughs) horseshoes. So my next question is, Who is out in the Pine Barrens? (laughs) Showing the, shooing the, (laughs) shodding the the horses. Yeah, Yeah. shodding the Jersey Devil.
1: Well, does that mean, though, it's some weird hybridization of other creatures that are alive and kind of come together? Or, my favorite theory, some kind of skinwalkery type creature.
2: Now I feel yeah. like, yeah, it's some kind of thing like that, but it's one of those things, you know how in the science fiction movies, you've always like, like in Terminator, you got to be naked when you do the jump <laughs> or in the fly, he's in a yeah. teleporter and there's a fly in there. I think what happened with the Jersey devil is he was doing this multi-dimensional travel thing and somebody yeah. like sneezed into the <laughs> machine.
1: <laughs> and now he's got, <laughs> and now there's horseshoes with nails and, yeah, and yeah. Yeah, on bird feet. Yeah. Yeah. So the whole <laughs> thing's crazy, especially the little, like you said, the Tyrannosaurus Rex little arms with split deer hooves or paws as it's been sometimes described, but the whole thing doesn't make much sense. However, there is one interesting thing, maybe not so much about the New Jersey Devil, only because it's been seen so much, but everything else, the Chimera and Mothman and the Thunderbird and the Owl and the Pterodactyl, if you wanna throw that in there, they are all portents, of doom, of some kind of disaster happening. Impending disaster. Impending disaster.
2: One, it's like we mentioned in the cold open about Chicago. People are a little bit freaked out. Why is everyone seeing this creature that is very similar to the Mothman over Chicago right now?
1: Exactly. Well, that's one part of it. I think with the chimera, especially volcanoes, it was a, uh, but some kind of natural disaster. And what was interesting about our talk with Rich is that even if he made that up and not, not even heard about it, where does that information come from? Is it because he kind of guessed something that is actually happening? Or, you know, I don't think that he was the
2: progenitor of that idea, but then do disasters happen because of it? You can't talk about the Jersey Devil without talking about the Pine Barrens. Oh, they go hand in hand. And the Pine Barrens, for people who haven't been to New Jersey or aren't familiar with this area, they're truly a mystical, magical place. I have great regret that I never made it there. And because I lived in New York, <laughs> yeah. not too far away for right. almost 10 years, and I n- always wanted to go and see what the Pine Barrens looked like, although I have a little bit of familiarity with it because the low country in North Carolina down by the coast is yeah. is kind of similar. Right. However, the Pine Barrens are even more amazing because it's just this huge area. It's 1,700 square miles, yeah. and the pine trees there are stunted in growth. So as far as the eye can see, you're just looking at this yeah. long forest of unhealthy trees. <laughs> well, there, yeah, there's a lot of pygmy uh, pygmy pitch pines. Yeah, and I guess there's a lot of fires there because that spurs a lot of growth of the pygmy pitch pine. Yes, there are a lot of fires, and then all you know, naturally occurring, and also historically. The fires were actually set as a defensive measure by Ah. people who were squatters in a way to avoid the authorities. But it's an otherworldly area. And it's been featured prominently, by the way, in whenever you hear talk about the mob, like the New Jersey mob, (laughs) that's where you go to (laughs) dump the bodies. It's in Miller's Crossing, it's in The Sopranos, it's in, like, you know, that's where you drive (laughs) the guys out there. Miller's Crossing is one of my favorite films. It's one of my favorite uh, Cohen brothers. It's just outstanding. And, and, uh, yeah. and, all,
1: and favorite films of all time, just the the whole world it creates. And they're never very specific about it, but they do go out in the woods. Those yeah. woods seem a little tall, but I did watch the Sopranos episode called The Pine Barrens. Oh, yes. Where there's some skullduggery going on, especially I think that's where they dropped the Russian guy off, which was a dangler because you never found out what happened to him. He's that's right. Where, he did not die there. He survived in his tidy whities Yes. Out, out in the winter. Yes. Uh, but yes, a vast expanse. And what's interesting is that its geological composition kind of determined its history because the soil is very poor and doesn't have a lot of nutrients. So there's not a lot of things that will grow there other than, you know, what naturally has taken over.
2: But more importantly, it was poor farmland. That's right. So at a time when the whole country was focusing on agriculture, this area of the country had to focus on industry because they didn't have a choice. There was not going to be a whole lot of farming going on. In the Pine Barrens. So one of the things they did was they manufactured munitions for the war with the Barbary pirates who had been attacking ships, sailing from Africa to the United States. They also manufactured munitions for the War of 1812. However, that industry died down and they had to shift their focus to glass and paper. So Mm. that was the next thing that they got into. So a lot of the roads you'll see, and even in Leeds Point, are related to forging, So it'll be Mills Forge Road. Oh, yes, right. That kind of thing. So that was what was going on there was this industry. But then additionally, there were people living there. And it was a hard place to live. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But it's just hard to fathom how much of New Jersey this area represents. And to a certain extent, development is encroaching on it now. But it's still a pretty large undeveloped area, right? Yeah, well, in 1978, Congress passed legislation to designate 1.1 million
1: acres, like you said, it's 1,700 square miles or 4,500 square kilometers of the Pine Barrens forest as the Pinelands National Reserve, which is the nation's first national reserve. To preserve the ecology there, because again it acts as an aquifer, and so that area has actually really good drinking water. It's very pristine, huh. but the soil it's very acidic and it's very sandy. So the locals call it sugar sand. I think because of the composition, what it kind of feels and looks like. Okay, uh, but it's very nutrient poor. But it's vast, like over a million acres of land that is kind of that scrub pine. And there's a lot of plants that won't grow there, but the ones that do are interesting because a lot of our carnivorous plants Yes. I think like the sundew. And I don't know about this because I thought the Venus flytrap, they say grows there, but I thought that was native to North Carolina. It is
2: native to North Carolina. I don't know if it grows there, but this goes back to my point that I was making a few minutes ago about the low country in North Carolina being yes. very similar. Exactly, yeah. The, the right. This right. sort of scrub <laughs> and the sandy soil. Yeah. It's very much what it's like down at the beach in North Carolina.
1: Right. Well, that's the reason that these plants have gone carnivorous. And thank goodness they're not 12 feet tall and yeah. you know, <laughs> like Sydney. Yes. more. So. Yeah. But they have to supply their diet with a bit of bugs here because there's not enough nitrogen and nutrients in the soil for them to survive, but they do. Nature finds a way. You also get orchids, which I just saw there's a PBS thing on about, uh, they're very clever in the way they hack nature. They can trick bugs into uh, pollinating them, and uh, just interesting how things will find a way to, to survive. Including the New Jersey Devil. Yeah. But yeah, so the whole area is, like you said, very interesting, beautiful, vast in its own way, and but untouched for a lot of it.
2: Now, you might think that a place like this wouldn't have necessarily a lot of animals in it, but I asked uh, Marissa Ball, who's one of our ARC members specifically today, to let me know what well, mm. was living there. And I was kind of surprised. She found this website called the org, and she pulled this quote from there. The Pine Barrens today is home to 35 species of mammals. Top predators like black bears, cougars, and wolves were lost to hunting and trapping long ago, although black bears seem to be finding their way back. Large mammals in the Pine Barrens include white-tailed deer, coyotes, the rare bobcat, beavers, and reclusive river otters. We also find red and gray fox, mink, long-tailed weasel, southern bog lemming, eight species of bats, as well as raccoon, muskrat, various squirrels, chipmunks, voles, and mice.
1: <laughs> so, so there you go. You have plenty it's of bats. It's a variety. busy area.
2: It's a busy area. And the Jersey Devil is a combination of about six or seven of those. And I love this eight species of bats. I love bats. My <laughs> dad had once told me, because he, he likes to spend a lot of time in Mexico, he had once told me that bats make up half the biomass of the country of Mexico. I can believe it. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. pretty amazing. Right. And if you go down there at night, it's kind of like in, uh, and I know we've mentioned this on the show before in Texas when all those bats fly out from under the bridge. You I Conger think it's in Street. Austin? Yeah. Or, yeah. D- Congress yeah. Street Bridge, I believe, for, from under it at sunset. You want them to
1: do yeah. it because there's a lot of bugs to eat. Oh, that's a, exactly. <laughs> you can thank them for keeping the mosquito population down. With yeah. Dad. So they definitely serve a purpose. And that is, of course, one theory we're going to talk about just briefly later on about uh, the Jersey Devil being a horse-faced bat. Yes. (laughs) But we'll discuss the relative merits of that argument later on. But again, so it's it's just possibly people are looking to the animals that are already there. One kind of interesting thing that came up on Paranormal States, the cable show, they were trying to find the New Jersey devil and they got something on uh, IR, infrared, uh, FLIR, forward-looking infrared camera there. And it looks like a creature with a horsey kind of a head and maybe wings or it could just be a deer. Right.
2: <laughs> so it's like, it's hard to, you, if you don't go down there and find it, Yeah, it's hard to say. Also, I wanted to point out that Joyce Diplock, also in the ARC, had found a listing that indicates that the black bears appear to be alive and well in the area. Black bears live mostly in New Jersey's northwest region, but they've been sighted in all 21 of the state's counties. So I feel like that's important. There's a reason I'm pointing that out. And when it comes to cases of mistaken identity or these tales that people say, well, I was in the tent, I heard uh, something outside breathing really heavy. If you didn't put eyeballs on it, I tend to lean towards the idea of that possibly being a bear of some kind. So anytime Uh you're looking at a cryptid story, you have to think about well, could that have been this or that or the other? You have to take all the behavior into account.
1: On the other hand, when you start looking at that, it's it's like with a bat, like people just saw a bat and it's got a kind of a horse's head. It's like, well, what bat have you seen that's about four or five feet tall? Yeah. That could fly. So yes, it has wings. It's weird looking. It has the horsey face, but it's not explaining everything, especially the long crane legs. So yeah, sometimes the explanations in cryptozoology are themselves a bit of a stretch in a field where a lot of people think that's a stretch. Oh, I wanted to dispel this myth. It has to do from coming from the 70s and Joe Piscopo and Saturday Night Live thinking that New Jersey is just factories. Yes. It's all industry. It's all Newark. Well, there's certainly a lot of that on the eastern coast, but a lot of the state is beautiful. It's very green. And there's a reason it's called the Garden State.
2: It's very green and very lush. It's a gorgeous state. I will say, having lived in New York and spent a lot of time on the weekends in Pennsylvania, which was only to the Delaware River, right? and a lot of the area that these other sightings took place in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, Yeah. initially there were sightings there as well. Oh, sure. We would drive through New Jersey all the time to go through there. And once you get out past, away from New York, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's just beautiful. Absolutely. The other thing I wanted to
1: point out here before we forget is that people think, okay, well, the Pine Barrens at Leeds Point, that's really right on the coast, the eastern edge, you could say, of New Jersey. And that's where the sightings were. It's just happening in the Pine Barrens. But throughout history for the 200 plus years, it's been sighted as far north as Bristol and Burlington and into Philadelphia. So that is going all the way to the other side of the state. So the devil, or devils, plural, has a huge home territory stomping ground.
2: Well, let's talk a little bit about the people, too, because there's an interesting history for the Pine Barrens. It's not exactly the perfect place to live, (laughs) so it took a certain kind of person to want to go in there, and in, in a lot of cases, I guess in the early days, it was people that were desperate, because one of the things that happened when the area was first settled was at the time when settlers were coming in, the rule of law followed what's called the primogeniture system, which meant that firstborn sons, just this is how it was in England, so this is how it was happening here with the settlers. Firstborn sons are entitled to everything, and other younger siblings are not really entitled to anything. So it doesn't make sense necessarily to stay home you're sort of an outcast. You have to go out and make your own way, because if you don't, you're never going to have anything. Well, you're not going to inherit anything. I mean, you could have work in the family business,
1: certainly. It's not like they kicked you out of the house. right? I mean, But this system comes from the very first Middle Ages period, I believe. Yes. So it's very ancient and from all of Western Europe. That was the way it was, because think about it. If you've got, say, you have a, a fairly large family, you've got four or five siblings, and mom and pop have a nice chunk of real estate. They got a tiny manor on it and maybe 100 acres of land. Well, that's doing pretty well. Well, when they pass on, how does that get split up? Well, guess what? If you got six kids, everybody gets a slice of the pie. And after that happens and people sell off their slice of the pie and their chunk or they do whatever with it, then it gets watered down. Suddenly you you don't have the value in that 100 acres that you did before. And it's a mess because as we know with every family, When it comes to wills, everybody argues over every last morsel left behind. So to prevent that big mess, it's like, guess what? We're just going to do it one way. Oldest son gets everything. Yeah, exactly. And then he can kind of dole it out as he sees fit or not at all. But you know what? I'm dying. It's the Middle Ages. It's not my problem anymore. So <laughs> <laughs> I've got I've got the Black Death. I'm going to check out here pretty soon and and uh, leave this mortal coil. But so there's a reason for that. And, and it carried over into American colonial times. So now we're talking late 17th century into the uh, early 18th century is our time period here. And so again, it's land that really nobody wanted to farm or could or make homesteads on. But around the edges, you certainly could. And you could certainly live in there. I wouldn't live way in the middle because you're not going to have very much luck
2: finding food or growing it. I want to read a little section here from James F. McCloy's and Ray Miller Jr.'s book, The Jersey Devil, that we mentioned at the top of the show. And by the way, we're not suggesting that everyone that is there is second and third kids. That's just, that's no, one no, no, theory yeah. about people that went there. There were lots of people that settled in the area. I guess there were a lot of Hessians in the area as yeah. well. Well, here's and, the thing. here's what I love about people and immigrants in that even we talked about the Old West spirit is
1: that, The Old West was unknown and wild and dangerous. And people
2: still agreed to make their way. They're very adventurous, yes. especially during those times. You they know, were nowadays, living in they were <laughs> living know. in conditions there that today yeah. would be labeled akin to homeless. They had oh, lean tos sure. tents yeah. in the woods, that sort of thing. And in, yeah, in, I, well, as we said, you know,
1: I was talking about uh, making that trip from like Bannock, Montana, down to Salt Lake City, or just like it's a two day trip, and you camp on the ground. Like every day there was camping. Yeah, <laughs> every, <laughs> every day, every day of your was, life camping. was camping. In this scenario. You have some hardy souls and they're not all, you know, society outcasts. A lot of them were like, well, you know what? I don't have much choice uh, otherwise. I'm just going to see – I'm going to make my way here Yeah, it's it's open.
2: And here's a section that I wanted to read. Life for people in these pine barren settlements had always been rugged, characteristically full of long hours and low pay. With the collapse of local industries, it became even worse. Many moved away while those who remained behind sank even deeper into poverty. They left the crumbling towns and moved into the forests and swamps to eke out a subsistence. Disdained by their fellow citizens, these people of the Pine Barrens became known as Pineys, a term which in later years became derogatory. And it's my understanding now that it's a term that people are proud of, much like yeah. I can say from my Hill, state, hillbilly. North Carolina, <laughs> redneck <laughs> oh, is, the, is the term yeah. that people don't have a problem with right. as much as they used to. They took ownership of it. But yeah. um, a hillbilly, I believe- Is um, still a negative kind. Con- <laughs> well, I, I don't really know because I'm not from that part of the country, but right. I think that applies more to up into the Appalachia Oh, Smoky area. Mountain area. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: Well, here's the deal there because it's actually the time period starts- not long after that, because it's a lot of Scotch and Irish immigrants making their way into the hills to, again, eke out a living. And excellent music, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. Subsistence farming, they were trying, because it's kind of hilly country, and it's like, well, have at it. You yeah. Go make a little homestead and raise your family. Not in a lap of luxury, but no, you, you ain't no kind of man if you ain't got land. Ah, clone brothers. Yeah, exactly. But you can have your own place, so that's the idea.
2: You know, I've had my movement watch almost a year now, and it still looks brand new. Me too. Still keeping great time. And they really hold up, and I get a ton of compliments whenever I'm wearing mine. I'm kind of a watch nut, frankly. I love to collect watches, but it is an absurdly expensive hobby and therefore unrealistic. However, movements watches are amazing looking, come in a ton of elegant designs, and they start at just $95. So collecting a few of them actually is within reach. It's pretty amazing to me that they are able to produce such cool watches for such a great price i mean they look like four to five hundred dollar watches
1: well that's what you get when you get two broke college kids wanting to wear stylish watches but they couldn't afford them so they started their own watch company and they streamlined it by selling online cutting out the middleman and retail markup so you aren't paying for a ton of stuff that has nothing to do with the watch itself they have a classic design quality construction, and styled minimalism. Jeez, I was working in a fast food restaurant in college. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe you should have thought about starting a company. But you know, we can be proud of our little project here, which is kind of the same thing. You know, a couple of guys making something from nothing. Or, you know, trying to at least.
2: Well, that's true. It's been amazing so far, and it's also been great for movement because they've now sold over 1 million watches in over 160 countries.
1: Well, it's not surprising considering how well-made they are and how clean their designs look.
2: And you can get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to mvmt.com slash legends. This watch has a really clean design, like Forrest just said. I've been getting compliments on mine ever since I put it on. Now is the time to step up your watch game. MVMT watches make great gifts, too. Whether you're celebrating a grad or your dad, hint, hint, Father's Day, MVMT is the perfect place to shop.
1: Go to MVMT.com legends and join the movement.
2: Hello, everyone. I'm Andrea, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. There are hundreds of documented encounters with the Jersey Devil, and I counted up the ones that they cited in Phantom of the Pines, that McCloy and Miller cited in Phantom of the Pines. In the back of their book, they have a little timeline, and that's 120 or 140 instances, and some of those are a year, and it's covering, within that year, yeah. there's dozens. Oh, so yeah. it's much more than that. It's just each time there's a year marked that's like 120 years. So it's pretty fascinating. We wanted to pick some out that we thought were worth sharing with our listeners. And if you want to know more about this after this series is done, we recommend that you get any of the books we mentioned at the top of the show. We'll have links to those in our show notes, of course. It's a classic old chestnut of a story. We've had a lot of requests to do it over the years. Yes, we have. Over the years.
1: Well, two and a half so far.
2: It feels, it, feels it feels like 10 years. It feels like 20, <laughs> I know. Yeah. One of the first ones that stood out to me was the story of Commodore Stephen Decatur. And that's what I call the cannonball story, yeah. which is dated in 1819. Yep. Did you want to share this
1: one? Or? Well, I'll, I'll start it off here. So here's kind of a good gist of the story. A lot of this is from Josh Sanofsky from the Week and Weird site here. And he says, in 1819, at the behest of President James Monroe... Commodore Stephen Decatur was visiting the Hanover Millworks to inspect the quality of his cannonballs as they were being forged.
2: As we said, the area was primarily industrial initially, and munitions was a big part of the business that went on in the Pine Barrens.
1: Well, while he was there, he reported seeing a flying creature matching the Jersey Devil's description. And he fired at it with a cannonball, with a cannon, and hit it how hard is that by the way <laughs> that's an impossible shot <laughs> believe me i've tried of course they have smaller cannons that are much more maneuverable which is what i'm guessing he used but still there's a reason that people go skeet shooting and small game foul shooting with shotguns yeah <laughs> because it trying to hit something with a rifle or a single projectile is nearly impossible but That's the story, and he wasn't alone. He wasn't like I was out in the woods by myself. He's on a tour here at the munitions factory with a bunch of people around, and this guy's large and in charge. He's the Commodore. Yeah. But that's his story, so he shoots at it, and again, great military
2: term, no effect. No effect. Yeah, and by some yeah. accounts, the ball went right through it and left a hole. Gun ready.
1: Yeah. Now there's, is that, you read that? Like, <laughs> I did read that. People saw that.
2: I, I read. Oops. So kind of a cartoonish. It left a cartoon hole in it.
1: Most of your descriptions about the strange interdimensional paranormal things happening are, are two-dimensionally cartoon-like. Yes. You do realize that, Yes, right? I do. So- I do. Well, you might say that that was kind of a uh, an anecdote told by some uh, military buddies amongst themselves, but work done on Decatur's house in Washington, D.C. in 2007 to 2008 turned up papers suggesting that the encounter might have been something more than just chance. He was definitely there in New Jersey at the time testing the quality of his cannonballs. So we know that to be pretty factual from, again, encountering these papers after some renovation work done on his house. What's interesting, a little tidbit here, is that he was apparently accompanied by Dr. James Killian, who at the time, and I love this because it's real old school, (laughs) was a famous paranormalist and cryptid hunter of that era, which you don't often hear about that. Yeah. Yeah. But so many weird things were happening back then anyway. Well, anyway, the stories collected from throughout that era in New Jersey and southeastern Pennsylvania actually have the two men going in pursuit of this creature... For months afterwards. Okay. So there's that they more... Up. So it's a very, very early episode of Cryptid Hunters, or some
2: cable yeah. show that didn't
1: exist back then. It's just two guys with parchment and pens and muskets. Well,
2: 1819 yeah. too, it uh, predates by almost 100 years, some of the more intense sightings flaps that they had absolutely so that's what's
1: interesting in that it's human nature to assign more weight to somebody's reportage than another's yes if it's a guy like well look we we said this last time and every time that we reveal a sighting we're totally respectful of the people who tell it if we talk to you in an interview and you tell us that's you know the god's honest truth of what you're what you've seen then we're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. But people do that. It's just like, well, that guys he was a farmer. He's kind of out in the sticks. Well, I don't really believe him as much. But military people and pilots and figures of authority, you tend to believe them more when they tell you something like that. Because I guess in a way you figure their reputations
2: are on the line. No offense to farmers, by the way.
1: No. Well, hey, I grew up around them. Certainly few in my family. And, (laughs) uh, you know, my thing is that these are no-nonsense people. Yeah. These aren't people with a lot of time on their hands to pull pranks. Yeah. We certainly had some characters in our family who like to have fun, but when it came down to it, it's like, these are straight shooting folks. Yes. But a lot of these are people who are in positions of power reporting. And so we have a couple of those and that's a good one and it's early on. So I want to get
2: that in there. Yeah, that is good. And one of the other ones that a lot of people who are familiar with the Jersey Devil stories have heard involves none other than Napoleon Bonaparte's brother.
1: <laughs> his older brother.
2: Yes. And no relation,
1: as far as we know, with our friend Jordan Bonaparte. Well, no, I I, I texted podcast. Jordan
2: today, and he's, he's pretty sure <laughs> that Napoleon was his grandfather to the fifth power. Uh, okay, going with that. <laughs> we'll see well wait, he's far of back yeah hey, i'm willing to believe him if yeah. that's uh, if that's what he says well his name is
1: bonaparte no but it is it is kind of that area it's very it's way yeah, by the way
2: we're talking about our friend with the podcast the nighttime podcast if yes, you exactly. haven't heard that check it out
1: right and he has a lot of stories from the nova scotia area and as we know from uh, oak island yes and we guessed it we guessed it on his show a while back on a the episode about the bell island boom Exactly. Well, here's another story of a sighting by, you can say, a famous, rich, noble person of the time who had a lot of rich, influential friends of the early American colonial period. Okay, so here's a rundown of the whole Joseph Bonaparte, Napoleon Bonaparte's older brother, his whole story involving America.
2: Yeah, how did he get get to the Pine Barrens?
1: Well, I mean... (laughs) Exactly. What is he doing in the Pine Barrens? Not exactly the Barrens, shall we say. He's a little uh, north and west of there, the nicer areas. Okay. Because, of course, he is royalty. Yeah. But it's interesting how he kind of got here. So I'll, I'll relay a little bit of that. Now, this comes from Matt Soniak, who wrote this article for mentalfloss.com, and it also ends up on CNN. So it's got to be true, right? Yeah, yeah, right. I trust Matt. I just kind of cross-referencing this. I think he he did a pretty good job here. So I have no problems with pulling uh, these facts, plus it's easier for him to do it than me. Okay, so, <laughs> anyway, so here we go. So Joseph Bonaparte was the older brother of Napoleon Bonaparte, but did not share his little brother's ambition for power. Uh, he was described by historians as mild-mannered and lacking vigor, which oh. love, which means it's like... You're kind of a lily-livered character. Like, right. Well, he wanted to be a writer, but he was pressured by his father into becoming a lawyer. So despite Joseph's lack of interest in ruling as a monarch, Napoleon, his younger little brother, very powerful, you know, the one with the Napoleon complex. Yes. <laughs> well, nevertheless, <laughs> he installed him first as the king of Naples in Italy, and then later as the king of Spain. Because, you know, it's nepotism. you got to put people in there that you can trust who probably won't turn on you and shoot you in the back, which you never know. Yeah. Well, he didn't fare very well in either position, especially in Spain, because a popular uprising against the French rule sprang up just about the time that he was crowned. So he's already got problems right off the bat that he didn't want in the first place. Not that kind of guy. He just wants just wants to write articles, maybe, you know, 14 kind of things. So, Joseph and his French forces couldn't defeat the Spanish army rebels because they were kind of joined up with their English allies. So, finally, it was too much. He just kept losing skirmish after skirmish. And he, so, he abdicated his throne in 1813. So, the little brother, Napoleon, doesn't do so well in his battles eventually either. And he gets defeated. And of course, as we all know, he gets exiled. Well, Joseph things aren't so friendly now in Europe because <laughs> you've caused a lot of devastation, or at least your family did, and you're connected to that. So he takes off to the new United States with an assumed name, an alias, taking the crown jewels of Spain with him. <laughs> well, you need a nest egg if you're going to yeah. live like a royal somewhere else. You got to, he's just... Hey, we've talked right about here. these
2: crown jewels before.
1: Well, remember that was a little bit involving Napoleon, but with the KGC yeah. and the fake Napoleon or Emperor Maximilian of Mexico. Yes. Right. So he's got a bag full of jewels. If I leave them here, they're just going to spread them out and I shouldn't be enjoying these anyway. Look, I, I got, I could get paid for what I did anyway, which was not much. So he first settles in New York and then after a little while he moves to Philadelphia where his house still stands and we'll have a picture of that. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, that's they, pretty cool. there's an address. You can look at it on on Google Street View. Scott showed me a picture earlier when it was kind of by itself. So of course they've put buildings up which are still old but yeah. right next to it but there's a historical landmark plaque next to it. So that's pretty cool. But anyway, after that, he moved to a large estate called Point Breeze in Bordentown, New Jersey, and it's about 25 miles northeast of Philadelphia, if that gives you some geographical location for those of you not in the United States. Well, he settled there for a while, and he took on the title of Comte de Souvalier. Remember when we were doing uh, the Count of St. Germain, how it was kind of easy and a common practice back then? if you were trying to leave something unpleasant yes, or get on with your life or make a new start, you just adopt a new name and a new title somewhere else. Right. And nobody really checked up on you. Yeah. Well, he did kind of the same things, except that his American neighbors and friends all still knew he was a Bonaparte, so they just called him Mr. Bonaparte. Right. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you can have the title, that's fine. You're just like Mr. Bonaparte to us. So while he was there, Joseph builds up the estate into an elaborate mansion, really grandiose. Spend his money well, just built up this place, huge grounds, exotic plants and trees and carriage paths and all that. Whatever
2: the crown jewels will buy.
1: (laughs) Well, he didn't seem to run out of them at the time, so maybe he was portioning them out. He was kind of a nice guy, apparently. Even though he had a lack of vigor? Even though he had a lack of vigor (laughs) doesn't mean you're not a nice dude. You're just kind of mild-mannered. Yeah. You're quiet. You're not the brash, aggressive Napoleon type like your little brother. You're the more thoughtful person, as he was described more visionary, like he had intuitive big ideas, but not cut out to be a hard iron fist rulers. So he basically just faded away into suburban life, but of course became the center of social life there in the area, because there's still rich people there and some old world folks that had some money. And old Joseph built up a huge library. He had a massive library that had the largest collection of books in the country at the time, housing over eight thousand books. Wow! The Library of Congress at the time only had sixty-five hundred books. So people came by just to read his books. He yeah, was, he was entertaining a lot, and he was well liked by the people. In fact, there's a side story of him. the mansion burnt down at some point later oh. on. The cause was determined as like, well, it's an accident. However, everybody around at the time said, no, it was this immigrant Russian woman who who was really unhappy that Napoleon Bonaparte caused so much destruction and mayhem and death in russia country so she started a little fire burnt the place down but he was so well liked by the neighbors and and actually the townspeople that he they rushed in and saved as much as they could like he had exotic you know rare paintings and jewels and gold-plated stuff and and cash even and they returned it all to him not a piece missing wow And he wrote a really nice letter of thanks. It's like, hey, you know what? Americans, you guys are all right. You're cool. Seriously. (laughs) He was that impressed that people, they came to his aid. And just for the sake of having nice, fine things rescued, they preserved him and returned them all to him. And he said, like, it could have been easily stolen, but you guys didn't take a penny. So anyway. So he was considered a nice guy at the time. He was also hobnobbing it with some of the big names of the day, like John Quincy Adams, Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, the Marquis de Lafayette and Stephen Girard, a French banker from Philadelphia who was then the richest man in the US. Now the point of mentioning all these names, I'm not name dropping here that I <laughs> I knew them or just knew of them. The fact that he's a well-respected guy and not the town drunk or the blowhard who's always making up and you know tall tales and spinning yarns. Yes, very well-respected guy. Well, Bordentown, New Jersey is 57 miles north of Leeds Point. That was where Mother Leeds apparently in Galloway, New Jersey, had the birthing experience back in 1735, approximately. So I just want to point that out in that it's a large territory to also be seeing the Jersey Devil, which is exactly what Joseph Bonaparte did. So as he recounts the story, he was out hunting alone in the woods near his estate when he saw some really weird tracks on the ground, very peculiar. He said they looked like they belonged to a horse or a donkey, but only using the back legs. He said, that was weird. So he starts following the tracks until they ended abruptly as if the animal had jumped into the air and flown off. So he stopped and he stared at him for a while. Well, then he hears a strange hissing noise coming from behind him. He whirls around and he came face to face with an animal he had never seen before. It had a long neck, wings, legs like a crane with horse's hooves at the end, stumpy arms with paws, and a face like a horse or camel. He froze. I think I would do. And for a minute, they stood there and stared at each other. Neither creature moved or breathed. Then the devil hissed again and flew away. Well, he's got to tell somebody about this. So he tells all his rich, wealthy, uh, upper class, well-to-do friends. And they filled him in on the local legend that, yeah, you saw the Jersey Devil, dude. You so <laughs> are you saying he wasn't even aware of it? He wasn't aware of the legend, no. Oh, he just okay. saw this weird thing, and of course, he's not from there. You yeah, know? no, that's fascinating. He, I did he, not know that. That's what's interesting. Again, he's not prone to making himself out as a nut for publicity. He's leading a quiet suburban life, just having you know rich garden parties and having his rich friends over. And he tells them, these are other leaders of the community. Like, hey, I saw something weird. It's like, yeah, you saw the Jersey Devil. At that time, he hadn't been around too long, but I wanted to point out that description because that is the classic description of what we have now. Yeah, As we go on, you'll hear variations of that, like it's red glowing eyes, it's kind of furry, it's got feathers or scales. There's a myriad of different things, but that one seems to have stuck and you'll see a common drawing of it. Basically, the drawing illustrates that description. Okay. So there you go. He, uh, from then on, he was said to have kept a sharp eye out in the woods looking for the creature again, because he wanted to shoot it and, you know, put in his trophy case. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, just... It's imagine. weird. Let's kill it. It's that's, weird. Weird. That's,
2: that's the uh, the other... <laughs> I know it's terrible.
1: It's really terrible. But just think if he had and put it in a case or in a big, you know, tub of alcohol, you would have some really weird cryptozoological specimen right now that would turn... Zoology on its head. Maybe. Yeah. Who knows? It'd just be fascinating. I don't certainly condone killing strange creatures you, just because you don't know what they are.
2: Forrest, did you see that Time Magazine ranked the Great Courses Plus smartphone app number four in their list of the top 25 best apps of the year so far? That's out of over 2 million apps out there. I'd say that's pretty good.
1: Pretty good? Dude, that's amazing. I told you it was awesome. And yeah, I did see that. Listen to this quote from the article. Sure, you could kill time on your phone with the latest button-mashing mobile game or by endlessly scrolling through your photo-sharing app of choice, but why not put your downtime to better use? The Great Courses Plus 2.0 is chock-full of fascinating lectures from top college professors and other experts. You can learn about the universe from Neil deGrasse Tyson, take a drawing lesson from a top artist, or improve your camera skills with the help of a National Geographic photographer.
2: We've been saying that for years. Well, a year and a half anyway. (laughs) And using the app is so easy because you can stream The Great Courses Plus on your smartphone, tablet, TV, or just download the videos and watch them whenever you want.
1: Stay tuned because we're going to tell you how you can try out The Great Courses Plus for a whole month for free just by using our special URL thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Okay, so Scott and I both love espionage stories and spycraft, and I think that's a lecture you're on in the series, right? Forensic History, Crimes, Frauds, and
2: Scandals. So tell us something fascinating you learned. Yeah, this lecture series is called The Spies' Habit. Get it? Yeah, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Have you ever heard of William Seabold? I remember the name, but tell us the story again. Well, most people know the more famous spies, like Kim Philby, Mata Hari, and the more recent Robert Hansen, but I bet a lot of people have never heard of William Seabold. Seabold was German and served the Imperial Army in World War I, but moved to the U.S. after that and became a naturalized citizen. During a trip back to Germany, Seabold was pressured by the Gestapo to spy on America. And fearing for his family, he reluctantly agreed. But Siebold went to the American consulate in Cologne and told them he was willing to work with the FBI as a double agent. He told them he was supposed to assume the cover name of Harry Sawyer and be an intermediary between other German spies in the U.S. and Germany. The FBI posed as spy Harry Sawyer and received and sent over 500 phony secret messages to the Nazis. Among Seabold's main contacts was ringleader Frederick Duquesne. Duquesne's spy ring consisted of 30 men and three women, and Seabold's counterespionage helped the FBI capture and convict them. It dealt a death blow to German spying in America, and to this day, it's considered the greatest spy roundup in the history of the U.S. Wow,
1: I love stuff like that. And if you want to know the rest of the story, or just about any other subject you can think of, go right now to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends to sign up, and you can learn about anything you want for a whole month for free.
2: Once again, to sample an unlimited amount of courses for free, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com. Dot com slash legends.
0: Hello, this is Cherie Cardoza from Sulphur Springs, Texas. Now, let's get back to Astonishing Legends.
2: All right, the next thing you have to talk about whenever you're talking about the Jersey Devil is the week of January 16th through the 23rd in 1909, which the guys who wrote... Phantom of the Pines, and the other book we were referring to earlier, uh, James F. McCloy and Ray Miller Jr., called The Phenomenal Week. Yeah, it was known then by that name. It was even before these guys put that in print? I believe
1: so, because it's 1909. We're not talking about 1709 here. We have fairly good reportage, from local reporters, and it's an area that's fairly well populated. Of course, you have big cities. It's New Jersey. There's been people living there for quite a while now. So not that that has anything to do with it specifically, but it's 1909, and thousands of people have now witnessed
2: this thing for over two to three weeks. Yeah. But this one particular week had an untold number of sightings, so many that it was hard to document them all. There were thousands of witnesses and lots of cases. We're going to talk about some of those events, but... It's now starting to cause panic. We're talking about the Frankenstein's monster here with people with
1: pitchforks and posses being organized to go find this thing because animals were now being hurt.
2: Yes, and killed.
1: And killed, and they were afraid that children might be harmed, so schools were closing so we're talking about a major flap here, and it was hitting all the newspapers at the time. One of the
2: things that I love about this particular period is that a lot of people were calling it a Jabberwock. <laughs> from the right, There Lose were a girl. lot of different names for it yeah. at the time. They also called it the Hoodle Doodle Bird. <laughs>
1: I Love that. The
2: Wazzlebug. Oh, that's a good one, too. And then also, as we already said, they called it the Leeds Devil because originally it was attached to the Leeds family in Leeds Point. Leeds Point, right. Um, Although there is one other town called Estelle Town, I think, that claims that it's the birthplace. Yes,
1: there's a few, of course, like anything else, there's a few towns that want to claim to be the origin town of the legend.
2: Yes. But, you know, the interesting thing to me about the Jabberwock is that it does tie to, as you said a, a second ago, Lewis Carroll. Right. And Jabberwocky is a poem that he wrote, which is considered one of the greatest nonsense poems written in English.
1: Yeah, it utilizes portmanteau, which is a combination jamming together words, which you see a lot of nowadays in marketing.
2: Yes, yeah, you know, Two indeed. words
1: jammed together. And then, of course, I always like the uh, what they call the camel humps in the punctuation where you have large capitals and then a smaller lettering, and then the second word will have uh, jammed together.
2: Well, also have a large capital letter. Originally, I guess Carol just wrote what is now, I think, the last or second to last verse, which is the famous one that everyone knows. Ah, uh-huh. yes. "'Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wave. All mimsy were the borogoves, and the momraths outgrabe." And, and forgive me if I'm murdering that. <laughs> we should call Robert Crutt for this. No, it's the last but, mimsy too. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. He made up a lot of words. It's very interesting. Carol... Created A lot of words In right. this poem And we actually had found A public domain reading Of the poem That I would like ah, to share right. With our listeners right, right now Do we have to take opium? No We okay. don't have to do that no.
0: <laughs> Jabberwocky By Lewis Carroll Read for LibriVox.org By Ben Lindsay Clark TreehouseTheatre.com In Bournemouth, England Twas brilliant and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borogoves, and the mome raths outgrabe. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jab-jab, bird, and shun the frumiest bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand, Long time the Manxen foe he sought, so rested he by the tum-tum tree, and stood awhile in thought, and as in uffish thought he stood, the Jabberwock, with eyes of flame, came whiffling through the tulgee wood, and burbled as it came, one-two, one-two, and through and through the vorpal blade went snick-a-snack, he left it dead. And with its head he went galumphing back, and hast thou slain the jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy! Oh, frabjus day, kaloo kalay! he chortled in his joy. Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wave, all mimsy were the borogoves, and the momraths outgrabe. End of poem. This recording is in the public domain.
2: So that poem in its entirety originally appeared in the sequel to Alice in Wonderland called Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There. It's fascinating because. A lot of folks seem to think that Carol was inspired by another famous myth called the story of the Lambton Worm. Uh-huh. Which is a really fascinating story. And I'm familiar with it for some reason, but it's one of those things where I can't remember why. I don't know why I was oh, exposed yeah. to the story.
1: Well, it's again, it's all part of myth of probably Europe and Western Europe that have kind of tumbled down to where we are now in our in our age. Yes. But these are all classic elements. To all these classic myths. Yeah. And they share a lot in common.
2: Yeah. And the Lambton worm story, which our UK listeners are going to be quite familiar with, more than me anyway. No, and you you think about it for our American folks, our Yankees over here across the pond, when you think of worm...
1: Yeah, it might have started off very small, but it's also a kind of a descriptor or symbolic name for a giant, you could say basilisk. Yes. From the Harry Potter (laughs) series, a giant, it turns into a giant snake.
2: The long and short of the story is this guy finds this worm, and then on the day that he's skipping church and going fishing, he finds it Ah. on the bank, and he takes it and throws it down a well, and then he goes off to war to right. the Crusades, I believe. Uh-huh. And during that time, the well gets poisoned, all the animals that are drinking from it start dying, and Ooh. then they realize that it's grown huge and it comes out and it's so large, it wraps itself around a hill in the area. And at night, it goes around and eats cows and children. Oh, again, and then, <laughs> like everything else it's got to eat. Come on. It's got to yeah. eat. But it gets okay. really big. It's another one of those don't throw things down the toilet stories. <laughs> it's the, no, it's and, also uh, the, the sewer alligator, Yes, you
1: know, urban legend, which is not so much. I mean, there's reports of people finding snakes
2: coming up out of the toilet. Yes. All the time. Oh, yeah. I've seen that on YouTube myself. Yeah. No, thank you. But Carroll wrote the poem, uh, the bulk of it, while he was staying with family close to the area that the Lambton worm story has originated, which is in northeast England in the county Durham. Hmm. And the interesting thing about the worm and then the Jabberwocky poem and the Jabberwocky itself— the resemblance between the Jabberwocky and the Jersey Devil is more than just passing. Oh, it's sure. a fascinating yeah. parallel well, between think the... Well, think about it. The Jersey Devil
1: in its description is also portmanteau in a way. It's kind of a few things jammed together uh, yes. to make a new thing, you could say.
2: Now, the interesting thing about Through the Looking Glass and what Alice found there was that that was published in 1871. So it was a little bit before this flap in 1909, but still it's in enough of an area well, that culturally it's significant, and maybe that's why some of these people are saying it's it, that this thing resembles a jabberwock. Right. Within 30 years, though, right? about Yeah, about, within 30 years.
1: Yeah, so it's not a huge amount of time, and of course people nowadays don't remember things from 30 years ago, but I certainly do growing up, media that yeah. I've seen, and that
2: would have been in, first and foremost in people's minds, so I could totally see them making that connection so I want to talk about some of these other cases that happened during the 1909 flap. I'm Just going to take little pieces of them because there's hundreds of them, and yeah. there's there's no way to share them all. And when we first started this show, you would have had to sit and listen to us share them all. <laughs> it would well, have been like seven that. part yeah. series. We're to fill time, yeah, for <laughs> but that's days. yeah. We're, we're not. We were never trying to fill time. We, no, just, we just didn't just, know
1: yeah. how not to. Personally, we just like to hear every little weird thing that we come across. Yes. Yeah. That's, exactly. <laughs> so we and throw then it share it with
2: you. Yeah. I well, listen to this. Even this guy's name is. Great. Thack Cousins, Mm. good old Thack, of Woodbury, was leaving the Woodbury Hotel when, quote, I heard a hissing and something white flew across the street. I saw two spots of phosphorus, the eyes of the beast. There was a white cloud, like escaping steam from an engine. It moved as fast as an auto, meaning a car. John McOwen had a house on the Delaware Canal. He heard something outside at 2 a.m. he said was like the scratching of a phonograph before the music starts but it also had a factory whistle kind of sound he saw a large creature standing on the banks of the canal looking something like an eagle and hopping along the towpath this is all in that week that we were talking about police officer james sackville heard some dogs barking and going crazy and he began to get a scary feeling He went over to where the dogs were reacting and very clearly saw a winged creature with the features of some strange animal and its voice was a horrible scream. Also that week, a postmaster in Bristol saw something flying that looked like a large crane, but was emitting a glow like a firefly. He said its head resembled that of a ram with curled horns and its long thick neck was thrust forward in flight. It had long, thin wings and short legs, the front legs shorter than the hind, and it uttered a mournful, awful call, a combination of a squawk and a whistle, the beginning very high and piercing and the ending very low and hoarse. They also were finding all over tracks that defied explanation. Other witnesses had described a two-legged cow with wings, Some of these tracks, by the way, led over fences and to inaccessible places. They could also be found on rooftops in the snow. There would be cloven marks on the roofs of houses. And sometimes they would be in areas that were too low for anything to get. Yeah, exactly. These two hunters chased one. It said it
1: went under a—you're talking about something that's about four to five feet tall— something big,
2: it squeezed into an eight-inch space and got away. And got away. And another person described having it under their cabin and they found the tracks under the cabin the next day, but that clearance was only one foot. Yeah. So... It's not clear what's happening here. This this reminds me of some stories we've touched on in the past. Well, we never did an actual story on it, but we mentioned it in uh, Springhill Jack, which was of course uh, Springhill Jack himself, yeah. which he is,
1: himself was uh,
2: extraterrestrial, shall yes, we say? Yes, that's one yeah. of our older episodes. If you haven't heard it, check or, it out. To John Keel's point, ultra terrestrial, ultra terrestrial way, yeah, yes. And then also the story of the devil's footprints, which you can just Google that one. Dover, yes, Dover,
1: England. Another, you know, and there's been theories like, well, that was a an escaped weather balloon that was dangling a chain and so you saw that but like and so maybe that explains some footprints up the side of the building and on the roof but there's more to it so
2: it's It's very strange. But yeah, that kind of thing happens, and not just in uh, this case. And there's just more and more stories, dozens and dozens of stories like this. All these people are seeing things. Now, I feel like in some cases, the descriptions are so disparate that there's definitely some misidentification going on, Right. a a little bit of maybe paranoia or freaking out. But there's a lot of them that the details are very, very similar, including the way that the animal this creature, whatever it is, the noises it makes, different people are describing (laughs) kind of the same thing.
1: Yeah. If you look at it and break it down, when you see something really strange, there's something about visually seeing something that's out of place that you have never seen before. You didn't even know it existed. And it's so freaky looking, it's got a camel head (laughs) and bird legs with giant shoes. I don't think you register it, but when you strip that away and you just hear the audio, well, you have nothing to connect that to. So you're hearing it. I guess what I'm saying is more cleanly. Yes. It's not like, well, that came out of that weird horse bird. It's like, no, you're, you're just <laughs> you're just hearing a screech. Like, well, that was weird. It sounded like a record starting up with the scratching and then a steam whistle. Yeah. You're hearing that more purely and not associating immediately jumping to some kind of weird conclusion, like you might be with something you're seeing that's strange. Now, here's two things. What I look for is the things that carry through between the different disparate sightings. And it's the phosphorus glowing eyes of red. No, there's no red. Oh, sorry, not sorry. Re- well, I, 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 haven't read, I, uh, I read one where it was, I think it was red. I mostly read white.
2: And and I have also read yellow. Yes, yes, and glowing and phosphorus. But I have not read, because red would have jumped out of me because of the Mothman. Uh, Okay. I feel like I read red. I'm saying red red. I feel like I read (laughs) red once. But bulk of the cases I'm reading was white and then also yellow. And when I read the story about the yellow one, I thought, okay, that's now. Here's the other thing. You know what else is living in the Pine Barrens? Yeah. Great horned owls. And oh, they sure. are huge, yeah. and they have horns, and they have yellow eyes, well, and they make scary noises, <laughs> and they attack things in the middle of the night. Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. They're not four feet tall and hopping on hind legs, though. They're pretty big. Not and when they And when their wings are
1: out. Look, you and your son, you happen to chance upon an owl wrangler, I believe at a hotel. You showed me a picture of it. Yes. And he's very tall. He's probably a foot and a half. Yes. Maybe two feet tall. And it's your son's kind of sheepishly <laughs> getting near it.
2: But wisely staying away, they don't get much bigger than that. So they're like I said, adults—you know—great horned owls range in length from 17 to 25 inches, with an average of 22 inches, there with a go. wingspan yeah. of three feet to five feet. Sure, I'll give you that. Yeah, yeah.
1: But so, so but yeah, I'm just saying, two feet tall. But their no, eyes I, and their eyes are yellow. They do glow. I'm not sure the reflective quality. I know that it's a deep hoot. And uh, it's kind of cool, but it freaks some people out. I realize that. And yeah, your, your imagination might start running away from you and you can start imagining like all kinds of strange things happening. Now, there's some parts of the other descriptions, though, that seemed beyond
2: OWL. That's like, true. It's I like agree.
1: Steam. Now that that's what I'm saying of, no. I'm not sitting yeah.
2: here debunking oh, this no, no, whole no. story. No, I am saying that some of these cases, I think, you know what, this person saw an owl. Yeah, this person saw. A sandhill crane. I totally we'll agree. We'll talk about the sandhill crane I totally later. Agree, yeah. Or this person saw that. But in other cases, when it's Bonaparte face to face, and it's he um, doesn't have any context to put that into a flying horse bat.
1: <laughs> horse, that's a good yes.
2: <laughs> I saw a horse bat, a horse dragon bat.
1: Yes, <laughs> uh, they're around in these parts. When and other around, people
2: t- talked about breathing fire too. Which takes
1: you into a whole nother realm
2: of impossibility.
1: You got to wonder. Now, quickly, I want to get this uh, wacko theory out of my own. (laughs) But, you know, I was growing up and, you know, little kids, of course, we love dinosaurs and tales of dragons and knights of old and being brave and all that. And then you start hearing these things like, was dragon, were they really made up? Maybe there was such a beast. And I always thought about this as a kid. Well, that's impossible when you get a little older. Nothing can breathe fire. There's no animal around that can do that. But then, you know, as I got older, I started thinking about the logic of it. Okay. Well, if you and your high school buddies have ever tried, you can certainly light some parts of yourself that emit gas
2: on fire. I would you just like to fuel. go on record saying that we are not recommending this, we don't no. know anything about this, no. do not try this at home, and no. I don't know Forrest.
1: <laughs> but just go on, no, go don't, on YouTube. Don't. No, I'm saying you could see it on YouTube. People do this on—it
2: doesn't need to be proven. I don't want—no. I, I'm, it's on Louis. It's on an episode of Louis where he has a favorite science fine. teacher. Fine, take it from Louis. <laughs> I do not want the liability associated no, with this.
1: No, absolutely not telling anybody to do this. I just put that beyond our. What does lighting what farts I'm, have to do with dragon fire? Oh, breathing if you fire? wanted to use. Sure, if you no, wanted to No, but I'm say just that. saying
2: that's, that's. No, what I'm saying is I'm, ends I'm, of the I'm, spectrum, am, so to speak. I
1: am putting forth a possible explanation of how something may breathe fire. That is not breathing fire. That's half of it. This is the most absurd. To make fire, you need three things. A lighter. No. Well, here we go. In that case. You need fuel, you need oxygen, and you need a spark. So Mm -hmm. what I'm saying is that, yes, people have- The spark is the uh, trick, though. Not necessarily, because when you think about it, birds and reptiles are related. If you want to go down that evolutionary line, there are some, there's a part of birds, The some birds, not all, but some are kind of related. I'm uh, waiting uh, for how you're going to connect this to a spark. Well, birds and dinosaurs have gizzards. The bones that have been found by archaeologists, dinosaurs, what's really cool, I thought, and I didn't really know this until it might be a few years ago, a bird basically, your alimentary canal from where you eat to where it comes out is pretty much a straight shot. That's why bird poop is, you know, you can feed a bird something and then 20 minutes later, bam, there it is. Well, with lizards, again, they have a a similar kind of deal where they may or may not chew things very well. Birds certainly have a beak, but they can't chew seeds and fruits and and nuts and different things that they eat. So that's the purpose of a gizzard. It's a very strong muscle. Well, if you've ever owned a bird, I've, I've had two cockatiels, they have to eat sand and they'll eat little bits of gravel, that ends up in the gizzard. That actually, that muscle chews the food for them. And it's the same with dinosaurs. And what's kind of cool is that they found these big piles of polished, smooth stones that have been polished by the dinosaur's gizzards. And I totally apologize to any people who really know what they're talking about here, because I'm getting the terminology wrong. But I believe that is correct. With these dinosaur bones, they actually found these stones that have been polished just from the rubbing up, which choose the food for them. And so they can digest it better. Well... So if, you're about to tell me. about to tell you. If methane. You could, if you could have... There's no
2: proof to this, of course. No, it's all but I mean, you're blowing it's my mind here. It's all ridiculous you're, you're, here. You're, you're freaking my noodle a if, bit. Uh,
1: if a dinosaur <laughs> or some kind of creature was able to swallow two things, two pieces of flint, and could bang those together somehow... With its gizzard. With its gizzard or some... Hey, look, animals do all kinds of amazing things. I'm, yeah. I'm sure you're aware of. Yeah. You could belch maybe some methane and spark it and get it to blow up. That's my crazy wacko theory. But the
2: fire would have to start all the way down in the gizzard.
1: You think about a flamethrower in the military. It doesn't light from way down inside. It doesn't light till it gets out. Alien. Remember an alien when they make the impromptu flamethrower on the spaceship? Yes. Well, it just has to come out. It has to mix with air. That's That's the important thing. So you need air, fuel, and a spark. Yeah, but the spark is at the tip
2: of the delivery device.
1: No, it could be. So he's—it's clapping. You're talking about a spark that's
2: down inside the creature.
1: Not necessarily. All I'm saying is that birds and dinosaurs—birds
2: and dinosaurs
1: have a genetic history of ingesting stones to aid them.
2: So what if they could do it with two pieces of flint? You're going to be surprised, but I'm buying a good portion of this. I am very uh, But surprised. I'm still waiting for the, no, the emails and the whatever that's going to tell us how wrong everything you uh, just said was. Well, nobody... But, but, hey, try and prove me wrong with
1: your findings out in the field there, Mr. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, No, I'm just saying this is all crazy. But what... Yeah. what <laughs> I'm, I'm acknowledging that. <laughs> what I'm saying, though, is that uh, animals do some very amazing things yes. that you wouldn't think possible. The archer fish that can spit a stream of water,
2: knock a butterfly out of the air and eat it. Yep. Uh, the mantis shrimp, the mantis moves, shrimp moves faster yeah. than the speed of sound when it's striking its prey. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I know. I, so, I got you. So on that.
1: What I'm saying is, by that, the way, if no, you want to hear about
2: that, look for it. Yeah. Radiolab did an amazing story. Oh, yes. Amazing right, story. Right. And, and the on one the shrimp that has the highest Color. sight vision. Color. It can see yes. a million more colors than we can or something. Colors, yeah. yeah, more than
1: we can. So, yeah. my point, though, is that I'm tying this all back to the Jersey Devil in this matter. And that all these stories of lore, the Jabberwocky, these tales of dragons and giant worms, and basilisks and whatever you have, maybe that originated from something
2: that's not so crazy, an actual sighting. So these things can happen. You know what's something I stumbled across just since we've been doing this episode? Mm. And I, I'm sure that other fans of cryptids already knew about, but I, I was new to me. The white cloud of steam that accompanies all interdimensional sightings. No. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, I already knew about that because ah, Linda Godfrey talked about it. That's right. That's what the, that, that description that guy gave. That's where it yes. triggered that
1: memory of uh, yes. it forming.
2: No, I was going to talk about the Mongolian death worm. Ooh, that sounds delicious. I did not know about this thing. Apparently, its native name is the Ogoy Korkoi, if I'm saying that right, which means intestine mm-hmm. worm Oof. because it's a red blood-like color. And I guess it's thought by the nomads of the Gobi Desert to live out in the desert. And it spews acid and eats... (laughs) Oh my goodness, And because the Gobi's been under Soviet control, there's no real record of whether or not this thing exists. But again, when I saw it, and I just started reading about it in this past week, you can see where the guys for Tremors got their ideas. (laughs) Right, well... And also the acid... The, you know, the spitting the ass. It's it's creepy. Don't look it up. It's certainly not if you're about to go to bed. Oh, anyway, dear. Well, then, I, of course, that that sounds like alien as well. Yeah. So anyway, I did want to mention one other guy, Hank White, who was a professional muskrat hunter, which there mm. were a lot of them in the Barrens back in the day. Right. When he saw the Jersey Devil in his encounter, I, I love what he labeled it. He called it an air hoss. <laughs> <laughs> what what like, is you know, Haas, because yeah. like, he oh, would like yeah. say, hey, Haas, hey, Haas, yes, Air, Air Haas. Haas. Air Haas. Yeah. Haas. Right. After he saw it, he's a professional muskrat hunter. This yeah. guy, he's hunting all the time. He's, this is what he does. spent a lifetime out in the woods. After this encounter, he refused to even go outside in the Pine Barren area without a gun. Wow. He wouldn't even, apparently yeah. prior to that, he was just carrying it when he was on his hunting trips. Right. So anyway, there's a lot of stories like that. There's a lot more of those in the books that we mentioned. I do want to mention also this description that Lauren Coleman talks about in his book, Monsters of New Jersey: Mysterious Creatures in the Garden State," which is a great book. We mentioned Lauren earlier, and mm-hmm. uh, we follow each other on Twitter and have exchanged a few a few pleasantries. I'd like to get him on the nice. show eventually, yeah. oh, but yeah. I haven't had a chance to ask him yet. but in in this book, one of the descriptions that comes up over and over when it comes to the Jersey Devil is that it is a winged kangaroo with a long neck. Well, that makes sense. This leads us to one of the sadder stories oh. associated with the Jersey devil. And by sadder, I mean sadder than a woman giving birth to a devil that killed everyone in the room and flew up the chimney. Oh, <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, that is pretty sad. The kill of everyone like, in the room. I should, you know, I'm exaggerating. You know. Only killed one midwife. In one version that I heard, the other one I had uh, that I, I, I thought was kind of funny because it reminded me of Spring Hill Jack was that it, it slapped and, and beat people <laughs> and then blew yes. out the window. Very much in a kind of Warner Brothers da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Or um, Monty Python, right? Monty Python, yes. The, yes, Slapping people and then uh, as, a, as a final affront and then leaving. The story's
2: about a man named Norman Jeffries who— decided that in order to bring people into the Ninth and Arch Museum, which he was the head of marketing for, I guess, if, they, mm. if there was such a title back then, decided that he needed to catch the Jersey Devil. Now, he had already planted several newspaper articles with far-out tales, an effort to get people to come into the museum, so reporters would no longer take him seriously. Of course. So he came up with this plan. I want to read this little section from The Jersey Devil, again by James F. McCloy and Ray Miller Jr. This is on page 80. And uh, this is relayed by a man named Watson Buck, a South Jersey old timer with vivid memories of the affair. I guess he told this directly to the authors.
1: No, I love stories like that, yeah.
2: When the hysteria built up, that was Jeffrey's golden opportunity to cash in on a hoax. He went up to New York State Rented a large kangaroo (laughs) from a friend. Yes, you can rent kangaroos. Well, yeah, that's one in New York State. They're known for their kangaroo rentals. Okay. He brought this kangaroo to Philadelphia and painted green stripes on it. The kangaroo licked all his stripes and liked to die. So then he tried another kind of paint, sounds like the... Wait a minute, the licking the paint just... Almost killed the kangaroo. Almost killed him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That sounds no. a little bit like the apocryphal story of the Goldfinger lady, I think. Mm-hmm. Then he tried another paint, which the kangaroo accepted, and he made a set of false wings, which the kangaroo promptly demolished. <laughs> yeah, they're not into that. Yeah. So he made another set out of thin bronze this time and covered it with rabbit fur. Then to continue his hoax, he went to the tenderloin, got 15 or 20 roustabouts, dressed them in farmer's clothes. I don't know what the tenderloin is, uh, but it's clearly a location. Yeah. Dressed them in farmer's clothes and took them, the kangaroo, pitchforks and nets to Huntington Park, which at the time was closed. It had a large fence around it, so people couldn't see what he was doing. They took the kangaroo in there, and these farmers spread the nets and pitchforks and captured this monster so they could get a picture of it. Jeffries then took the kangaroo in the cellar of the old dime museum. That's right, it was 10 cents to get in. Fixed the stage up, put gnawed bones on the floor, brought the kangaroo in, and he was ready for business. But the kangaroo wouldn't cooperate. (laughs) So he stationed a boy, Holding a stick with a nail in it in the back of the cage. The audience was led in. The boy poked the kangaroo and it jumped to the front of the cage, green whiskers flowing, bells ringing, and just for an instant he was seen. Then the curtain quickly came down and Jeffries was ready for another batch of sightseers. Oh dear. So they all went to the museum to see to, the Jersey Devil. To poking Four a kangaroo. kangaroo. Yeah. Which he later copped. He told this whole story in 1925 or 1929 later. He came clean about it. Uh, so, and also there's a sucker (laughs) born every minute.
1: That being said. We just talked about that, about people going in. You didn't have much entertainment back then. So you'd go in and and just see weird wonders and sideshow kind of freakish things. And then, uh, you know, it's 10 cents, you get your money's worth and that's it. Kangaroos can be ornery and and they box you. They will punch you.
2: Yes, they will. Yeah. I had a friend uh, who was from Australia and he was in a petting zoo and he was in there with, I can't remember what he called it, but it was some kind of treat that you, or sandwichy type treat that you eat in Australia. Yeah. Oh, but not for, a Vegemite sandwich. No, no, no. But it, he called it for my sake, so I would understand what yeah. it was, a Hot Pocket. Oh, well, it could be um, pie, yeah. Yeah, but it had a particular name, but I can't remember. Our okay. Austra- We have many listeners in Australia and dear friends in Australia, so you guys can tell me what this thing's called. But well, it, please send it's kinda, us one, kinda, I'll eat it. Kind of like a Hot Pocket. So <laughs> yeah. he's in this petting zoo as a kid, with his hot pocket and he goes and there's kangaroos jumping around and these are supposed to be the nice kangaroos and one comes bouncing up to him he's sitting on a picnic table he's doing that thing where he's got his butt up on the top of the table and his feet on the bench yes kangaroo comes over looks at his hot pocket (laughs) punches him (laughs) super hard yeah and he falls backward off the table when he gets up the kangaroo's eating his hot pocket (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway. Yeah. It was so yeah, like the it's, Warner it's, Brothers cartoon, yes. <laughs> and we used to say this uh, kangaroo kicked your butt and took your Hot Pocket. But it took um, your Hot Pocket. But uh, we didn't say butt. But anyway. No, there, this is a clean show. So. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, there you
2: go. But the
1: idea is that some portion of this is going to be chicanery and hoaxery. Yes. There, there are going to be people, especially during these flaps... You might have a, a sighting of something that is kind of weird. And then, you know, especially people back then, that's that P.T. Barnum kind of feeling. It's like, ah, I got going to whip this into a frenzy. Like, go poke a kangaroo. You know, <laughs> like, they would do outrageous stunts to generate publicity. Well, And those things happen today. I'm not ashamed to admit You poke the
2: kangaroo? No, oh. but when the NC State Fair yeah. came through Raleigh, as it still does, and when I was in probably high school age... I paid good money <laughs> yeah. to go into a little trailer and see the world's largest crocodile or something that was supposed to be alive in a tank. And you went right. in there and it was in the some giant tank yeah. with some water over it. It was definitely not alive because the toe was coming off of it and stuffing oh, was coming geez. out of the toe. But it was a big crocodile. <laughs> yeah. But I'm just, you know, Wait, I would have it, been... Was it a stuffed crocodile? Yeah, was it, it was once, stuffed. A, but they real? were saying that it was alive. Yes. I see. Yes. Well, but that's no, something. It definitely was once real. Yeah. So I would have been right there, I guess, trying to look at that poor kangaroo. Of
1: course, you're going to take a look. I'm curious. They've caught the Jersey Devil. (laughs) They've caught. I would certainly go take a look if that's what they claimed. Well, every once in a while, though, strange creatures are caught on tape, and it makes you wonder what's really lurking out there in the woods. Now, there was a story that happened uh, in the news. I actually saw it recently. Yeah, actually just a couple of days ago, this guy's taking some cell phone video. I think he's out hiking in La Crescenta, which is kind of towards the hills here. La Crescenta-Flint Ridge area. Very beautiful, lovely area up there, north of the metropolitan part of Los Angeles. I go up there sometimes to go look at meteor showers. So you're, yeah, you're kind of getting a bit into the hills and it's kind of quiet there. So he's taking some cell phone video and he didn't notice it at first, but I think as his mom, he's playing it back at the site here to his mom, and she goes, what is that in the video? Now, there's certainly been some Bigfoot stories where that's happened. Uh, people yes. on, a, on a rafting trip, I believe. And this, that was kind of convincing to me, because they're really out in the middle of nowhere, like the Snake River or something. And there's a they come around a bend, and there's something kind of squatting in the water, just... You know, he's going to take a a quiet bath and suddenly here's this big sightseeing rafting tour coming around the bend and (laughs) kind of quickly, uh, it's real quick, so you don't see much of it. But in this case, this guy, Jake Gardner, said, uh, quote, you could definitely tell that it was some type of ape-like creature. It got me a little bit nervous. So this thing's, it's just very quick and it's kind of blurry, and we'll post the link in the video. But it's kind of seen moving the trees. It's a little weird. It kind of resembles an ape, is the most descriptive thing that people can say about it. But he's the guy who shot the video. It's something happening in the trees. But of course, now people like the Jersey Devil at the time of the 1908 flap. Uh, this thing is not too far from a YMCA. So there could be kids there. And that's the thing. It's like, oh, it's, come on, it's just a chimp. It's just a, somebody's escaped pet. And that may very well be. That's a likely explanation that somebody... You know, chimps are hard to take care of and, and they're cute and cuddly, but when they get to be adults, they can be very aggressive, very ornery. Ornery, however you want to say it, <laughs> yeah, but, and they've definitely harmed people. That's been in the news too. They can easily kill you. And what they do is they go for your hands or your face Ugh. yeah, and they just gnaw and rip at it. So anyway, he, of course, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife has taken an interest in this and they want, want to figure out if this thing is running around, they got to corner, it. they got to trap it because it could hurt people. So it is being investigated. And so Andrew Hewen of the Department of Fish and Wildlife said, it does look like an ape something to me, but it's pretty hard to tell from a grainy cell phone video, he said. And then Gardner has been, the guy who shot the video has been back several times trying to get another, you know, crack at taping it. But wildlife officials said that's a bad idea because if it is an ape, it won't be cute or cuddly. And so the wildlife official Hewan said, quote, it's going to be scared and it's going to be disoriented. Therefore, it's going to be potentially really, really dangerous. that's going to wrap up part one of our series on the Jersey devil. We'll be back next week with part two, where we'll
2: go deeper into the possible backgrounds of its origins and theories on what it might be. Please remember to support our sponsors or visit patreoncom slash astonishing legends to get cool swag and access to behind the scenes areas in the astonishing research Corps. Special thanks to John Bolin.
0: Hi, I'm Sheree Cardoza. Hi, I'm Marianne Delarocco. Hi, I'm Andrea Torres and I give permission to astonishing legends to use my voice however they see fit
1: galaxy wide in perpetuity
2: galaxy wide in perpetuity galaxy wide in perpetuity our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees and the theme is by Judson Crane sound design is by Ryan McCullough special thanks to The ARC and its lead researcher Tess Feifel but most importantly we
1: want to thank our listeners you can find us online at astonishinglegends.com as well as Facebook Patreon Twitter and Instagram copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess good night <laughs> Thank